The following podcast was recorded in 2022 and is now being released for the public. Thought leadership, titles, current events, legislation, and technology may have changed and evolved since it was originally recorded. We literally need to be prepared to see a whole lot of technology that we didn't know existed until it's staring us in the face. And whether that's from our adversaries, private individuals, some other country's program that we weren't tracking on, things are moving fast and furious. And the IC does not have the agility to keep up in most cases. We're, we are still so much a Cold War entity, bureaucratic and lumbering, and not particularly keen on, on rapid or revolutionary change. That's going to be a real challenge for us. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. I am your host, Jane Doe. On this episode, I spoke with Dr. Deborah Path from the National Intelligence University's Office of Research. Dr. Path is the co-director of the Center for Trust, Truth, and Transparency and an associate professor of research with the Anne Cara Christie Institute. She arrived at NIU in 2015 from the Defense Intelligence Agency, where she began her career in the IC as an all-source intelligence analyst. Dr. Path holds a doctorate in justice, law, and criminology from the American University, a master's in forensic science from the George Washington University, and a bachelor's in political science from Gettysburg College. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart. Thank you so much for coming back, Deb. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. To kick things off, I kind of wanted to ask you about your interest in the privatization of space. Normally, you do research on truth, trust, and transparency in the IC. You are one of the co-directors for the Truth, Trust, and Transparency, or the TR3 Center, under the Kara Christie Institute. So this is a departure from that a little bit. Why do you think we should pay attention to this issue now, the privatization of space? Because to some extent, there's always been some privatization. You know, in the 1960s, companies were contracted to build the systems and the components for our space missions. So why now and why on a subject matter that, you know, traditionally thought up as, well, you're not an astronaut or a physicist. Why is this relevant right now? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, before the Hill disabled the comment section beneath their articles, which I actually thought was a, was an excellent move, <clears throat> trolls. One of the comments about the article I published last year suggested that you know, hey, she's a criminal justice PhD. What business does she have discussing space? But this is not about air propulsion or fluid mechanics. It's about policy. 
and what I feel is a very real threat to intelligence. And that, as you mentioned, is the privatization of the intelligence function. That is not going away. And in fact, with the introduction of so many private corporations and individuals who are interested in and profiting from the space mission, that is only going to continue to increase. And I think it's incredibly important that the intelligence community pay attention not only to the foreign threats that space and cyberspace pose, but also what is really an unwitting threat, most likely likely within our borders. And that is individuals and corporations that are kind of taking on this, this space mission without thinking about the possible implications for national security. Yeah, it's, it's really phenomenal how this has all developed. You know, to set us up for this conversation, can you talk a little bit about the existing guidance that is out there regarding space activity? Yeah, absolutely. And some of it's really quite recent. So the, the first that we have is the was the Outer Space Treaty, and that um, came into force in 1967, and that established kind of the basic legal framework for international space law. Today, all major space-faring nations are a party to that particular treaty, and that includes a, a number of different principles, and I'll just touch on them really quickly here. One is that the exploration and use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and interest of all countries. It should be free for exploration and use by all states, and that it's not subject to national appropriation um, by claims of sovereignty. Basically, what that means is those people that are out there selling papers so that you can own um, a piece of the moon are selling exactly that, a piece of paper. Um, You cannot own any portion of the moon or any other special body. And also that states shall not place nuclear weapons or any other weapons of mass destruction into orbit, and that anyone shall be, excuse me, the state shall be responsible for any of the activities, and it doesn't matter whether they're carried out by government or non-governmental entities. And then finally, that a state shall be liable for any damage caused by space objects. And now we think of things like, you know, space debris and satellites and collisions and things like that. What's really important about this is that it does not expressly ban military activities in space or obviously the establishment of military space forces, because now we've got one, or the placement of conventional weapons in space. And next we have the Space Act of 2015, and that went so far as to give individuals and corporations ownership over the resources that they extract from space. So you still can't um, stake your claim, but you can mine asteroids and the moon and and that sort of thing for minerals, gases, and, and water. Now fast forward through a few additional like just policy documents in various regard, and you get to the national space policy. And that was released by the Trump administration in December of 2020. And this was a, a pretty sweeping addition and that it was intended to help establish international law norms of behavior. And it also established the, the U.S.-led Artemis Accords. We're going to leave that out of this discussion for, um, for brevity's sake. But I, I'd like to read a quote about the intent of this policy from the Office of Space Commerce, because I think it's really, really important to capture it precisely. The national space policy recognizes that a robust, innovative, and competitive commercial space sector is foundational to economic development, continued progress, and sustained American leadership in space. It commits the United States to facilitating growth of an American commercial space sector that supports the nation's interests, is globally competitive, and advances American leadership in the generation of new markets and innovation-driven entrepreneurship. 
this is this is really the first time the integration of the the private space industry with the federal government was elucidated quite so bluntly. It promises not only to provide this robust commercial space capability by by purchasing and using United States commercial space capabilities and services to the maximum extent under the law, but it also talks about developing government space systems only when there's no suitable or cost-effective commercial or international capability. And it goes one step further, and it says we should refrain from conducting space activities that preclude, discourage, or compete with United States commercial space activities. And and that's huge. So basically, what I see from this policy is U.S. government, get the out of the way. The commercial industry has this. And, you know, in terms of capabilities, I have no doubt they can and and they have run circles around the government. NASA does not have Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk's budget. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, nobody does, right? <laughs> but it, it, what we're missing here is an acknowledgement or recognition of the secondary and tertiary consequences that, that might arise if, if private industries edge out the foreign government. Now, we do start to see a little bit of a recognition of that in the Biden administration's release of the United States Space Priorities Framework, and that came about in December of 2021. And and here again, um, I'd like to quote directly from the document because the exact language is really important. The United States will foster a policy and regulatory environment that enables a competitive and burgeoning U.S. commercial space sector. U.S. commercial space activities are on the cutting edge of space technology, space applications, and space-enabled services. To facilitate the growth of U.S. industry and support the creation of American jobs, the United States will clarify government and private sector roles and responsibilities and support a timely and responsive regulatory environment. U.S. regulations must provide clarity and certainty for the authorization and continuing supervision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that that just kind of begins to touch on the concern that we're getting here. But I think there's there's much more legislation that we're going to need in order to close some of those gaps. It seems so. It's it's very interesting how those documents kind of lead to more questions than they give answers, especially when we're talking about some of the critics. They say there is a lack of accountability and, you know, labor issues and environmental issues. These are all things that haven't been thought through. And what is his name? Uh, the astrophysicist, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was like, well, you know, just think about when the planes were invented, when there was no infrastructure to regulate, how planes would fly and there were no policies for safety and whatnot. But it's really interesting how this has all evolved in the last decade. Going back a few years to the 2014 NATO summit, they put out notes about their meeting on space and they said that the outer space benefits must not be allowed to widen the gap between economic and social inequality, which, you know, the socioeconomic and geopolitical issues aside also create national security issues. But I'm wondering about what role you believe private companies should have in the international discussions and negotiation agreements like these NATO summits to regulate activities on the international stage. I mean, these discussions have generally been between governments. So what level of involvement should they have at this point? Yeah, definitely. That that's a great question. So, um, at least in terms of, of government contractors, I think inherently governmental functions applies here. 
just as it does to, to all government contractors. Although, you know, I'll, I'll be quite honest and I'll say that I'm not really 100% certain that we have a great definition of inherently right. governmental functions. Right. <laughs> right now, it's, it's something like a function that is so intimately related to the public interest that it requires performance by employees of the federal <laughs> government. And, and some of those can include, you know, judgments related to, to monetary transactions, resources, entitlements, developing IC policies. To me, that that's a little bit nonspecific, but but that's what we have. But if a private entity is going to, you know, it's going on the record, so to speak, they shouldn't be involved in international discussions or, you know, for that matter, domestic discussions that involve setting policy or or discussing resources. But you know, again, here we run into one one of the the sand traps of having a few individual people holding the purse strings of a very right, influential right. industry. Elon Musk is worth what, like 250 billion? Bezos, maybe 150, 160. These guys, whether we like it or not, are the people having the most influence right. on the space industry now and probably for the foreseeable future. So they run companies that, that can and do partner internationally on space-related ventures. The first privately funded liquid-fueled rocket that placed a satellite in orbit was a Malaysian remote sensing satellite. And guess who launched it? SpaceX. <laughs> And it was just pretty recently, I, th I think in August, um, it was just announced that SpaceX is going to launch um, a Japanese satellite into orbit next year. And, and these companies are going to partner with people who pay them. And those customers may be very well, those customers may, may very well be international customers. And of course, that's true for a lot of companies and corporations. Many have large and, and very influential international partnerships or clients. But the difference here is the magnitude of control concentrated in the very few. If yep. There's a tremendous amount of real estate, it literally and figuratively being controlled by a very small number. And that can easily result in informal influence and, and, and outcomes that exist outside the scope of the government. Yeah, it's kind of scary. I, I think I was reading that if they start mining asteroids, that the considerable wealth that these billionaires would build is unfathomable. You know, yeah. they talked about billionaires buying islands and football teams and all of that stuff. But if they start mining those resources and there's nothing to prevent them from keeping those resources, these individuals, this group of men and women are going to be able to buy countries. So mm -hmm. that in and of itself is different because you have a new government order in that way. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of the content when you Google privatization of space is kind of dystopic in a way. And I hate to go down that rabbit hole because it's easy to do <laughs> because you start thinking about all these crazy scenarios. But yeah, going back to. I, I joked, no, I, I mean, I, I joked about the United States of Amazon in my article, but it's really a troubling intersection between economic and political power. I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. We'll be hearing from Dr. David Charney on the psychology of insider spies in our next episode. In his biography, Dr. Charney notes that he completed part of his medical education at the medical school at Stony Brook University in Suffolk County on New York's Long Island. Stony Brook is just up the road from and is a partner in the group that manages the Department of Energy's Brookhaven National Laboratory. Although perhaps less known than some of DOE's other national labs associated with the Manhattan Project and later national security work, such as Oak Ridge, Los Alamos, Sandia, and Lawrence Livermore, Brookhaven has a remarkable history of scientific achievement since its founding in 1946 to include the awarding of seven Nobel Prizes for work conducted at the lab. Among its many illustrious alumni, one stands out for his contributions to intelligence history. From 1948 to 1970, physicist Samuel Goodsmith served as a senior scientist at Brookhaven. 
A Dutch immigrant, Goodsmit was a vital contributor to the ALSOS mission, the World War II effort connected to the Manhattan Project aimed at understanding the German progress on a nuclear weapon. A well-known physicist before the war, Goodsmit served as the also scientific head, partnering with Army Colonel Boris Pasch, who's worthy of his own future minute, in what is considered to be among the earliest, if not the first, scientific intelligence missions in U.S. history. This small group of intel officers and scientists traveled across Europe with and sometimes ahead of U.S. expeditionary forces to find Italian, French, German, and other scientists, examine documents, and inspect sites, eventually determining that the Nazis were not nearly as far along in their atomic bomb efforts as was feared. For security reasons, the ALSOS members were not aware of the progress being made by the Manhattan Project. The story of the German program and its aftermath is fascinating and available through a variety of books to include the now public secret transcript of the recorded discussions among several German scientists in a manor house in the English countryside shortly after the war, referred to as the Farm Hall Transcripts. After the war, Goodsmith wrote his own account of his activities in ALSOS, a remarkable book about his wartime experience. It's a fantastic and really quite straightforward read, written with the emotion of a Jewish immigrant to the United States confronting Nazism, but also with the insights of a scientist observing the insidious impact of authoritarianism on discovery. In the book, he argues that the German program was doomed to failure due to Nazi Germany's unwillingness to be open to dissenting views, even in its scientific efforts. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu. You know, if you look at the People's Republic of China right now, their their national security policy says that any innovation is owned by the government. So we can't do that, as uh-huh. you know. So I'm wondering, what should the IC or maybe the broader U.S. government consider for these, to prepare for these geopolitical conflicts that may not just involve what we consider traditional foreign actors, but may in the future actually consider like individuals who are American citizens, but now they own you know, they own territory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole private citizen, <laughs> the assets and all of that, it's, yeah, it, it's really complicated. It's incredibly complicated. It's, it's, it's a wicked problem and things are moving so rapidly. We literally need to be prepared to see a whole lot of technology that we didn't know existed until it's staring us in the face. And whether that's from our adversaries, private individuals, some other country's program that we weren't tracking on, things are moving fast and furious. And the IC does not have the agility to keep up in most cases. We're, we are still so much a Cold War entity, bureaucratic and lumbering, and not particularly keen on, on rapid or revolutionary change. That's going to be a real challenge for us. Yeah, it's true. It's very, very true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think everybody in the intelligence community says it's true. But we're not necessarily doing anything about it. We're right. now in a situation where we, we have to keep pace with an industry that, that thrives and even exists on revolutionary developments. And, and we're also going to have to learn to be more imaginative, to take risks. And, mm-hmm. and that the latter, that taking risks is really something we're, we're adverse to because that means there's right. a chance that something terrible is going to happen, that we're going to be wrong. And that is not something that our culture supports. Yeah, I, I see. 
us as a very risk adverse in, in adopting new technologies, even AI, something so somewhat sem- seemingly benign at this point. And I, I put that in air quotes, you know, the IC just has not gotten on board, really. So, I mean, where does that put us in the space race? And yeah, I guess that's a bit of a rhetorical question. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're going to have to consider innovating, removing stovepipes, streamlining decision making. And who hasn't heard of this before? These are all things right. we've talked about at length. We've taken yep. incremental steps to it, but that's, that is not going to get it. Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess that brings me to kind of my next question, and it's kind of a two-part question. What the government, you know, NASA, NRO, and DOD need to do to sustain its own decision-making role for national security? Because as private companies, they don't own space, but as their real estate is expanding in space more and more, you know, how are we going to maintain that, that government function of, you know, this is national security now. We need to step in and actually take responsibility for our country's safety. Yeah, let me see if, 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 if this answers it. So we, it, uh, meaning both the federal government and the IC, we, we need to be collaborating with private industry, else right. we're going to quickly be overtaken by foreign government capabilities. And, and to date, absolutely supports that intention. But I think we're writing private industry a bit of a blank check right now. They're using government contracts to advance their own capabilities. And yeah. they're often, often those capabilities are being used for their own projects. We actually saw this with with a somewhat public disagreement between NASA director Jim Bridenstine and Elon Musk over a project known as Commercial Crew. Musk tweeted something about about SpaceX Starship project, which was SpaceX's solo effort to try to send people to the moon and Mars. And Bridenstine responded that he expected to see the the same level of effort directed toward NASA and the American taxpayer. And what he was referencing was, (laughs) wow. (laughs) A little bit of snark going on there. <laughs> yeah, so there, there was a lot of difficulties and delays um, with that with that particular project. So the Twitter war was on between Musk and Bridenstine at that point in time. And, right. you know, private industry, it, it, they're not waiting around for us to put the checks and balances on them. They're, they're taking government funding and running with it. So uh, we really need to, to look at what we have built up so far and think about what we need to do with that legislation to close some of those, those gaps. Yeah. It's funny because proponents of the privatization of space, you know, cite lower costs as being one of the positives. And if we're not monitoring what is happening, you know, we we don't have those checks and balances. How do we actually know? Is it really costing us less for us to go through private companies, especially when we don't know how they're using the funds? Or how they're using their their data, for that matter. I mean, it, we we saw this with Facebook and, and Meta, and you know, it, <laughs> talk about buying the United States. We right. have no idea where where all of that data is going. It, I mean, it, you 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 use space for so many things, everything from you know your your dating profile to uh, running major <laughs> corporations, and it's it's really just kind of quite scary what can exist out there if um, if it's if it's not handled properly at the outset. And that outset is is very rapidly passing us by. Yeah, yeah. Talk about dystopic. <laughs> uh, the rabbit hole is just opening <laughs> up. <laughs> you talked a little bit about, you know, our economy is about 25% space related. Like you just said, our dating profiles, everything is related to the satellites. And as you said at the onset of this conversation, this isn't going away. I mean, it could have some catastrophic implications for our economy. You give us some background on some of the existing guidance available, such as the space treaty is inadequate. 
And although it prohibits the use of WMD, it doesn't ban the militarization of space. And we've seen cyber warfare and, you know, with with Russia, Chinese investment in the anti-satellite weapons. These are becoming real on another playing field that you mentioned we're not really prepared for. But is there anything that you can think of that you believe should the U.S. government be doing anything additional to make sure that these private companies are protecting the U.S. public's interest? Yeah, yeah. This is a really challenging question, right? Because we have... The U.S. has a free market economy, and that depends upon the laws of supply and demand providing Mm -hmm. the basis for an economic system without government intervention. And space is obviously highly, highly in demand right now, and that demand's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So we have to really be careful of the way in which we regulate the private space industry because so, so much of our lives, not to mention national security, depends on it. If we've got too strong of a hand, then foreign adversaries will, will, they'll get to jump on us with advanced technologies. If we're too weak, then private industry exceeds controls. And, you know, as as the article mentions, they're not beholden to the public interest. And, and I, I think the bottom line for, for Musk and Bezos and Branson isn't the welfare of the American public, no matter how much, you know, they might try to convince us otherwise, it's it's money. Right. And there's there's surprisingly few commercial space activities that that are actually being regulated today. The FAA mm-hmm. does does launch and reentry, NOAA does remote sensing satellites. Licensing of commercial satellite communications is done by the FCC. The Departments of Commerce and State do the license exports of space technology. And while the the 1976 Outer Space Treaty requires signatories like the U.S. to to authorize and continually supervise the activities of of non-governmental activities, the U.S. regulatory system has not, it's just not kept pace with the expansion of commercial space activities into businesses like satellite servicing, in-space manufacturing, lunar exploration. We're, We're really missing a clear mechanism for new space applications that aren't already subject to to kind of what we've what we've built up so far. And actually I'll go back to, to policies or councils, I suppose. Because because the space policy involves so many agencies, the National Space Council was established in 1989. And its its job was to provide this coordinated process for developing policy and strategy and for monitoring its implementation. Well, it met for the first time in 25 years in 2017. <laughs> it's met three times at least recently. They, they, they're catching up once in April of, of this last year, 2022, once in August of 2022, and, and once actually quite recently on September 9th. Um, we're, we're recording this podcast on September 15th, so I haven't been able to get a transcript of, of the latest meeting, but at least the first two meetings focused on regulating the international norms and, and rules of the space industry to mitigate national um, security threats. They also looked at developing a new rules framework to, to ensure clarity and consistency needed to attract investors. So again, not regulating the activities of our own commercial space industry. So I'm I'm taking a very long time to answer your question. Sorry, but no, this is this is great stuff. Getting thank you. back to your question. Oh, thank you. It is you know, is there anything we can do? We need to recognize that the, the threats aren't going to come only from the, the outside of the borders of the U.S. They may come from the commercial space industry when they sign that blank check and exceed what are right now unspecified, broad, or non-existent regulations on their activities. And I think this is an effort that the National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO, needs to lead. Right. How can the commercial space industry, our own commercial space industry, pose a threat to our own 
national security. And again, mm -hmm. I'm not implying intent here. Think collisions of satellites, space debris, hacking into systems. Right. But I'm, I am suggesting there is a, a very real national security threat to the privatization of space that we're not closely considering. It's really fascinating. Just step aside for a little tangent. I read that, you know, one of the reasons why privatization of space, you know, is such a great thing allows NASA to use their budgets for to further the exploration. But right now they can barely see through all of the satellites. There, there's so much visual noise up there that the, the noise is blocking any kind of advancement. So it's kind of it, it seems like it, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. And then absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is look up in the sky and, and you're going to one day from with the naked eye, be able to see more satellites than stars. And, oh, and I think that's that. so sad. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly sad, especially for people that love nature. And absolutely. So as we're winding down, thank you again for taking the time to talk about this really fascinating issue and that, you know, Dicey needs to get his head wrapped around. Yeah. Are there any further considerations we should be thinking about? Yeah, and this is this is kind of a shameless plug for for um, my center, the Center for Truth, Trust, and Transparency, which I co-direct with Dr. Bowman, and and we're lo really looking at at transparency and openness. And this here, this is the the intelligence community's opportunity to start building stronger relationships with the U.S. public, so the public understands what it is that we really do why and and how they can play their role in protecting our national security. I mean, national security is the U.S. government's most basic responsibility, but it right. is no longer the exclusive domain of the public sector. It, it depends upon individuals, corporations, so forth, a, a whole range of actors. And again, mm -hmm. those people are not beholden to the public interests. So for most Americans, the intelligence community presents itself as a work of fiction. They experience right. through Hollywood, books, the media, just dozens of highly sensationalized and, and really greatly inaccurate sources. And this has created this perception of the intelligence community that simply, it's not based in reality. And what's more, it's, it's really generated a lot of suspicion about our methods and intent. There was right. a, a recent polling that was done by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs that was very interesting. It suggested that a majority of Americans do believe the intelligence community is effective and necessary. But if you stratify that down by age, you'll find that it's carried very heavily by the silent generation. So 78% of the silent generation approves of the IC, compared with just 47% of millennials. Oh, wow. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in three short years, by 2025, millennials are going to make up 75% of the workforce. Right. So we've got 75% of the workforce and less than half of them trust the intelligence community. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that alone could very well lead to the privatization of the intelligence function. And I think, you know, the IC isn't open and transparent about the things that it can be open and transparent about. We're no, seeing we're governments rely on data from private individuals and com commercial corporations already. I, commercial images have played a huge role in the war in Ukraine. Commercial right. satellites capture troop movements, the location of missile attacks, destruction, so forth. And, and that imagery has been so vital that the government of Ukraine issued a plea for help asking satellite companies to share their data with the Ukrainian military. That's unprecedented. Yeah, that's that's amazing that we've come that far. And also scary. Yeah. And 
it is. It's terrifying. And, and you know, what's next? We have so many different collection capabilities out there. The public has so many different collection capabilities out there that I, I think there's a very real danger that the intelligence community's mission can be privatized. So again, I, I would really like to see the NRO lead the discussion on space privatization within the intelligence community. Excellent. Dear Dr. Scolise, thank you in advance for your consideration. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming on Intelligence Jumpstart. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.